Um, we're in 2 Samuel 22. Um, we, this week and next week, um, we'll be finishing up the book of Samuel. And um, if you remember, I don't have it up on the screen, but I wanted to draw your attention again to the chiastic ep- um, epilogue that we're in. In other words, the conclusion of Samuel is in a chiastic shape or form, which is an ancient literary device um, of how ancient writers arranged their material and got you and I as a reader to kind of see the focal point of what they're getting at. Um, It's an outward structure that moves inward toward the middle. And so chapter 21 and 24 are kind of the, 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 um, what, the bread, I guess, if we're going to go with the sandwich analogy, the bread. And then we've got David's mighty men in the middle. And then we've got this song, um, which is kind of a memoir of David's life in song or poem form. And then next week we have his last, very last words in the first um, seven verses of chapter 23. So we're right in the kernel at this point, and we're about to finish up um, Samuel. So with that, let me pray, and then we'll read the chapter together, and we'll discuss, we'll discuss David's life as he sees it and as he wrote about it. Jesus, um, as we discuss David's life, could we also discuss yours? You are the son of David the one that he um, is pointing to. Lord, would you show us how his life points to yours? And would you also show us how his life speaks to our lives, Lord? Show us his way of thinking, his way of living, and his way of viewing you, Lord, so that we could do the same, Lord. Um, And I pray that you would help us all dissect this together. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. It's a long chapter, so I just decided just to, you can just, we can just read it together. I put my computer up on the screen and we can do this together. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And this is what he said. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves, the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of, destru- of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I called. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and he came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherubim and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him his canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice. 
And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delights in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the way of the Lord. I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me. And from his statutes, I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him. And I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, Lord, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem torturous. You, You save a humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You have a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and I destroyed them. I did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet. For you equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise up against me sink underneath me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me. Those who hated me, I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. You delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People who I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me. As soon as they heard of me, they obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart. They came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be my God, the God of my salvation, the God who gave me vengeance and brought, me, and brought down people under me who brought me out from my enemies. You exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from, viol- from men of violence. For this, I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. 
Amen. This is the word of the Lord. What an amazing way to encapsulate David's life. This is the psalm that was chosen, or the song that was chosen, to really sum up all of the great themes of David, David's life. And I want to discuss this together, and I want to see what you all observe. There's a lot of beautiful things to observe as we study this together. But first, let me give you, give you some framework, or give us some framework in which we can look at this. First, in a literary sense, you need to know that this song is very similar to the song that Hannah had written in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. The two poems act like the front and back cover of this book that we call Samuel. So in a literary sense, the author is using poetry and songs to bind his work together. And the song of Hannah from chapter 2 and this song of David have um, very similar themes. Both talk about Yahweh's faithfulness to save those who fully trust in him. Both of them say that. Both of them, by the way, call Yahweh the rock, um, which is a title that speaks of, I hope we can see dependability, stability, something that's lasting. Both talk about God um, abasing the proud and rising and raising up the humble. Both talk about that. And both conclude by talking about Yahweh's king, his anointed one. Now, this song of David that is somewhat revised and placed in the Psalter, it's actually, you can find it again in Psalm 18. It's a little bit different. Um, but it's placed here in the epilogue of Samuel because it sums up the major themes of the life of David. So it acts as a memoir. In other words, what does David want us to know about his life? Or what does the author of Samuel want us to know about the life of David after we've seen this chronological order of the life of David that's presented to us, this history? This is kind of a sum up of what is the important things about David. Um, first... Have a look at the contextual um, sentence in the beginning. It says, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song right here on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of his enemies. Now, in one sense, this could be a reference to when Saul took his own life on Mount Gilboa, the day that David was finally delivered from his enemies, especially Saul, was that fateful day. But however, in another sense, Yahweh had already continually been delivering David in his fugitive years when he was on the run from Saul. So again, it's more of a general term than it is something specific. Um, and yet again, one might suppose that David was really not free from all of his enemies until he was um, crowned king of all of Israel, both north and south, and brought them together. You might think that's when he was freed from his enemies, and yet it's not true. David shows that um, there was many enemies after that, as we can see in 2 Samuel chapter 5. He had to go about still defeating his enemies. And even still, David's life was continuously plagued by people who were pro-Saul. <laughs> um, I think of, uh, you've got, what was his name, Shimei and Sheba? Those guys were even far after Saul's death. They always thought that the throne belonged to the house of Saul. And they came against David. Even when David was on the run from Absalom, these guys came out and taunted him. And basically accused him that he murdered his way to the throne. And that it really belonged to Saul. So you see, this song 
though it may well have been written in a certain situation or in a certain circumstance, however, it's an apt song to describe the entirety of David's life. What was the life of David about? Well, first, I want to, I want to point out from this song that David's life experience and, their, um, and the way God responded shaped his impression of God. His life experience shaped his impression of God. Look at, um, look at verses, well, let's just go verse 1 through 4. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. This is kind of the deductive thesis, you know, where he, he basically says up front, this is what I want you to learn, and then he's going to lead us in how he came to those conclusions. It's deductive reasoning versus inductive reasoning, where you start with the conversation and you come to the conclusions as you're talking. This one, he puts it straight up front. God, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior. You saved me from violence. I called upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I'm saved from my enemies. That's the thesis. This is what I want you to know. And then we're going to start unpacking that in the verses that come, af- that come after that. So from this first four verses or two verses. The Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer. Read it through. What do you guys see that he's described? What, what are these metaphors? I think there's nine metaphors in Hebrew here. What are these metaphors? That are just, it's metaphor upon metaphor upon metaphor about God. What do they speak to you? What do you see here? Yeah, please. Feet like a deer. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Confidence, right? Where does he get that? Where does he, yeah, Dave. That's what I'm saying. Where does he get that idea from here? The confidence that he gets. What do you see? Were you going to say something? For okay. No, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Oh. Yeah. Yes. I love that. So, yeah, for those of you that didn't hear, Dave is, Dave is saying how personal his relationship with God is. So in David's view, God is someone who is interested and involved actively in David's life. He's not a distant force. He's not, some, he's not someone that he... Um, puts a request to and maybe God gets back maybe he doesn't this is to him God is someone who is closer closer than the air on your skin he's involved yeah good point Any, what else do you guys see yeah Josh yes 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 this shows kind of the theme of David's life, and that is it was a life of danger. I mean, all of these metaphors, they center around deliverance. They centered around defense. Um, they all have kind of the idea of salvation, somewhere to hide, protection, all of those types of things. And so in showing how God has responded, it also shows David's experience of life. 
He knew a life of danger. Um, you know, as a shepherd, he was challenged by bears and lions. Right? That's First uh, Samuel 17, 34, he says. From Goliath and the Philistines. Eventually, Saul, the first king, his jealousy chased him into the, into the forest. I mean, it's just a life of turmoil and, ad, and adversary. Yeah, Renee. He was in solidarity with God's will, so he submitted himself to God. Yeah, absolutely. And because of that, God was his rock, his salvation, his refuge. So I think one thing that we can learn, I want to keep going on what Josh was saying. David is saying life is adversarial to a certain level. Life is hard. Yeah. Yeah, to go, uh, that's in the Sermon on the Mount, to go into the secret place and pray. Yeah. Yes. Yep, yep, you're hidden away kind of in a refuge. Yeah, Richard. Exactly. Yep. So I think you can say what you're, we see kind of a twofold idea here that life is hard so David knew a life that was hard and because of that he also knew a God that saved he knew a God that delivered yeah he delivered in the middle in the middle of those difficulties absolutely I think one thing that we can identify with David life is dangerous it's hard, if anybody hasn't noticed. Have you ever, I mean, I've, I've talked to several of you in, in my own life where it feels like, man, life is just brutal. It's just harsh. It doesn't care. It's some, somewhat unfeeling. It feels chaotic. It feels like sometimes we can take one hit after another, you know, and David lived that life. From the beginning, he was forgotten by his father, um, he was promised to be king, but that didn't happen the way he thought it was going to happen. Even when he became king, he had to run even more. He inherited a divided kingdom. He had to go through that. Then his own turmoil from within, his life with, you know, his immorality with Bathsheba, his, his murder of her, of her husband, the fallout that came from that from Absalom. Absalom trying to, I mean, life was just difficult, difficult. And through it all, through all of that, because this is placed as the, in the epilogue, David is saying, through all of the ups and downs of my life, here's the conclusion. God is my rock. What do we think of a, with a rock? What's that? Firmness. So, yes, it's stable. Yeah, anybody else? What's that? Solid, yeah. It's um, not going anywhere. It, uh, Nellie, it makes me think at the end of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus said, Any, whoever hears my word and does them is like a wise man that builds his house on the rock, right? And the winds come, life is hard, the storms come, there's turmoil, and yet his house, that house stands, stands, the, 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 stands over life. And those who don't do it are like a foolish man, the word in the Greek is moros, where we get our word moron, 
like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. It looks the same on the outside, but because life is hard and full of conflict, there doesn't need to be a happy ending. The house falls, and great was that fall, right? Absolutely. God is my rock. He is, he is the stable thing in my life. Don't we know that? Is anything else in our life stable, really? No. We lose, you know, we lose good things. We lose people. God forbid even sometimes our families are taken from us. We lose our jobs. Our country doesn't seem stable at times. Um, all the things that, we're, that we want to cling to and build our house on and depend on um, are unstable. And here at the end of David's life, he's saying, here's the one thing that I find that has stayed and that I could depend on, even through my own failure, God is my rock. Absolutely. David learned that the darker the night was, the brighter the stars were, so to speak. Right? Okay. Say that again. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. There's some, I have maybe a little bit of beef with that, and maybe you all will too. I think yes, but um, there's some things about this psalm that maybe surprised you as it surprised me. But David, David said, I called upon the Lord who is worthy of praise, this is verse 4, and I was saved from all my enemies. So David's initial impression of God was formed around how God saved him. Um, in other words, he learned who God was by his observation of his interaction in his life. Just like knowing a person. I know Jameson more and more the more we spend time together and I see how Jameson responds to life. And I can start, it's just like with any person, right? Um, I can know, okay, I, sorry, it's on my mind, Taylor Swift, she's in town right? I can know a lot about, yeah. Are you going? Dude. Dude. You and who else? I don't remember. But yeah, she's, she is, Nathan and I were figuring this out. She is walking, she is leaving Seattle with $26 million in her pocket after then, or after them when she came. <laughs> it's nuts. It's crazy. Net. Net, yes. Yeah, crazy. But, you know, we can know a lot about Taylor Swift from the Internet. But can we say that we know her? No. You only know someone when you spend time with that person, right? And in the same way, God is the, God, David would say, that's how I got to know God. Through my life, I would cry out to him and he would respond. And through his responses and through, like Dave said, his personal interaction with me, I got to know him and here's what I've learned. If I could describe this God that I know personally, I would say, Dave would say, he's a rock, he's stable, he's faithful, he's not going anywhere, he's the place I go to hide, he, he's always there when I need his help, he responds. And you look, I mean, look at his response. Well, first... Look at David's trouble. This is verse 5. It says, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. And the stairs of death confronted me. In other words, David is, what is David saying? He's saying, um, I, was compl I'm compl I could not do anything to get, me, get myself out of this problem. 
This is an ins- I was in an insoluble problem. The one that had all the power, if you want to go with Saul, was the king. And I was powerless on the run. Death was at my door. And I'd run out of resources, basically. Destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. I think of Jonah in the water, you know, in the belly of the fish, being completely um, entangled up. Nothing he could do. But look, like Jonah, in my distress, I called upon the Lord to my God. I called from his temple. He heard my voice, and my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. So God responds. David's impression of God is a God that responds and responds cosmically. Look at all this cosmic imagery. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. It's like a dad protecting his kid, right? Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him as canopy. Thick clouds, a gathering of water, out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare, and the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of his, uh, at the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of the waters, he rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Okay, um, so number one, I think we've determined one thing, that David had an impression of God based on his own life experiences. But secondly, I think David also had an impression of God because David was able to frame or place his life circumstances within greater theology, within the salvation history of his people. Did you notice all of the Jewish imagery here? Uh, I already mentioned Jonah. Um, Here's another clue. Let's see here. Um, from his temple he heard my cry in my distress I called I called to the Lord look at this let's see let's go Exodus 2 23 during those days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help and their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God saw the people and uh, and God uh, or saw the people of Israel and God knew see the see the idea here David knows his history look at verse 16 how do I go back like this <clears throat> Verse 16, then the channels of the sea were seen. Do you remember a time in David's life where the channels of the sea were seen? I don't. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast 
of his nostrils. What does that remind you of? A dragon? Okay, yeah, sure, yeah. Um, what about, I think this, I, does this Bible even get where I'm, yeah, it does, look at this, okay, I can do it the fast way. Yeah, parting of the Red Sea. This is Miriam's song. She says, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up and the flood stood up in a heap and the deep congealed uh, in the heart of the sea. Um, let's look at verse 20. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. After Yahweh brought Israel out of the Red Sea into a broad place into the wilderness, this is what he said. Um, there Israel encamped before the mountain. That's Mount Sinai. And when Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on, in the wings of eagles and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice, you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the people, and all the earth is mine. And you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, I delight in you. I saved you because I love you. You're my treasure. And here's, my, here's the point that I want you to see here. David not only formed his impression of God from his own life and his own life experiences, this is something that we um, should put into practice as well, but David balanced that out and formed his impression of God because he was able to place his own life in the greater theology or in the greater salvation history of God in the world. The Exodus, we know if you read past the Exodus throughout the Old Testament, the Exodus was not just an event to the Jewish people, but the Exodus became the template by which God not only did save, but would continue to save. If you read Jeremiah and if you read Isaiah, they continually prophesied of a new and greater Exodus, that God will save the world again through another kind of escape or another kind of exodus. We know um, out of the exodus of sin, of cosmic slavery to sin, through a new Moses named Jesus who would be the son of David. But David was able to frame his life in the story of salvation. David could see, okay, just like Israel was chosen as a, as a, a, a nation of priests, I was chosen to be king. But just like Israel had to go into the wilderness first, I've also gone into the wilderness. Just like Israel was facing a foe much bigger than themselves, what scholars call a complete slavery. That means nothing they could have done on their own could have freed them from the slavery from Egypt. No picketing, no signing petitions, nothing would have worked. They needed a power from the outside to save them. David was able to say the same thing. In my life, I needed that too. I was facing enemies that were way stronger than me, that had all the power. It wasn't because of my military prowess or because I was so strong. God came and he saved me. And this matches with what I know from God from my own salvation history, from, from the Bible. My point is, David was not just a student of his life experiences. David was a student of Scripture. And he was able to form his reality of God or understand God so clearly and so crystal clearly because 
because he, had those two, he was able to match those two things. Can we do that? Can we do that? How can we frame our lives? This is my question to you. I'll open the floor. How can we frame our lives within the example of salvation in Jesus? What if Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection were not just events that saved us from our sins, but also is an ongoing template of how we can frame our life and our life experiences? Can you think that way with me? What do you think about that? What's that? A whole lot of serving. A whole lot of serving. Yeah. Jesus saved the world by serving the world. Right? Yeah. He saved the people that hated him because he served them. He loved them even unto death. What does that say about our greatest um, way that, that Jesus through us will ongoingly save our world? through our little Christ-like contributions, a heart of love and a heart of service behind them, right? Yeah. Yeah, Chris. Yes, yes. That's how he did it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Man, that boggles my mind a little bit. That's what what Debbie just said is next level. Can you imagine your enemies knowing they're going to betray you and they're going to use you in the end, not just to be courteous to them? Not just to be nice, but like Debbie said, pull them into the inner circle and love them and treat them with love and kindness and respect. I mean, this is, yeah, that, yeah, that's the stuff redemption is made of. Absolutely. Yeah, Renee. Okay. Okay, yeah. Mm-hmm, yep, absolutely. Anyone else? Or that maybe through, um, th- let me, Renee, maybe it's actually through our damage that God brings healing to others. If we're following the, if we're following the template of Jesus... You know, there, you know there's, think of the disciples. They're, they're watching their master die not knowing that this act would save the world in our lives when the worst happens you know the thing that you're hoping doesn't happen the most when it does happen can we look beyond it and say maybe through this god is going to do something beautiful that i could not that i could not see unless this happened what does the death of a dream look like the death of a dream look like Maybe the birth of some other dreams that we could not see as long as we were holding so tightly to that dream. Yes, right. Unless a seed goes into the ground and dies, it bears much fruit. There does seem to be 
a rhythm throughout the Bible of death brings life. Death brings life. I think we, um, in, in the Western world, have thought of that as like a one and done thing from Jesus. And in a sense, it is. Absolutely. We're, going, we're forgiven. We're redeemed. But for it to on, it's also set as an example for us to live in a certain way. Christians look at suffering this way. They look at hardship this way. That through my sacrifice and my death, or the quality of it, life can come to my family. I have a shot at life. We were talking about last week that how that um, cycle of hatred and evil is broken. The more vengeance, we, we just keep the cycle going. The more we try to get vengeance for ourselves or make people pay. But only if we stop the cycle by loving somebody or by serving the people that have hurt us, do we have a, maybe a shot at there being some redemption. Like Renee said, maybe not always, but we, we have the greatest shot at it at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, I wanted to, there's so much we could say here, but I wanted to hone in on this bit right here. Look at this. This is a memoir of David's life. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. And then he says, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. This is beautiful Hebrew parallelism here. With the blameless man, you will show yourself blameless. With the, pure, with the purified, you will deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Okay, you guys, this is confusing, I think. Right? David, how in the world can you say that you are righteous? How in the world can David say that he was righteous? I mean, you, uh, I think Renee had said David was the epitome of a disciple following the ways of God. Really, though? I, I beg to differ. What's that? Okay. He repented when he could. But right here he uses the word blameless. He doesn't say, I repented when I could. He says, I was blameless, righteous. In fact, look what he says. He says, look what he says here. He says, I kept myself from guilt. I was blameless before him. Uh, he says, from his statutes, I did not turn aside. In other words, I followed all the rules. For all his rules were before me. Nellie, were you going to say something? Could it be prophetic? Okay, that's an idea. I, don't, I, I love that idea. I don't think it's right, but I love it. Um, anyone else? Job? Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. Good point. Yeah, Daniel's saying this is a very hyperbolic word. It's, very, it's used very rarely. Yeah, absolutely. So in the moment that he wrote this song, and, and he thought he was righteous... He does not believe in God. The, he does not believe in the Son and the Holy Spirit at this point. I can tell you that. Okay. Okay. There's a theory. Yeah. Anyone else? 
Um, well, in one sense, I think I'll, I'll I, I don't know, I can't remember who said this, but I, whoever said it, it, it's true. In one sense, though David sinned and sinned badly, he is classified as righteous and not wicked because his relationship with God has, I think what Renee was saying, has general integrity. In other words, that is, it's genuine, though not perfect, right? Um, here's Eugene Peterson. He says this, and I love this, this sum up of David. Eugene Peterson says, David believes in God, thinks about God, imagines God, um, addresses God, and prays to God. He also forgets God, disobeys God, sins against God, and ignores God. But God is the reality that accounts for and defines all that David does and says. The largest part of David's existence is not David, it is God. In other words, I think like somebody said, I don't remember who it was. In other words, it has often been remarked of what a great sinner David was, and it's true, but he was also a great repenter, and that stood out most about David. And in God's, uh, in God's economy, especially if you, if you survey the words throughout the Bible, that equals righteous. Um, in one sense, like in the Psalter or Proverbs or the rest of the Bible, respectively, the term righteous really means, quote, those um, that live in active dependence on God as opposed to the wicked who consider themselves autonomous. They consider themselves, I can do it away. So the basic, the basic definition of righteousness and wickedness is dependence on God, I need God, I depend on Him, versus I don't need God. I can do this all on my own. That's the overall general description um, or people that ignore God. Yes. Yes. Mm hmm. Yep. Mm hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, uh, well, okay, that's where I'll depart from you right there. I agree with you, but here's what I think. I think, in one sense, yes, that is true. In another sense, I think we are taking a Western idea of salvation, which means forgiveness or go to heaven when you die, and we're imposing it on the, on the Bible. Even though the Bible does, it's at least those things. Salvation is at least forgiveness, and when we go to heaven, or that we go to heaven when we die, or we're saved, or declared righteous in a justified sense, in a legal sense. But you need to understand, broadly, more broadly speaking, salvation in the Bible is an entire life that's on, that's on a continuum that is bearing, a, that it, like a tree that is heading in a certain direction. Um, Psalm 1 says that the righteous are like trees that are planted by water and they will bear fruit. So there's this continuing kind of organic spiritual process that is happening in the righteous. It doesn't mean that a tree doesn't have problems every once in a while or, or those types of things, but there's a growth. Jesus used this metaphor often, especially in the Sermon on the Mount. Can, you bear, can someone um, get figs from a, from a thorn bush? Can someone get good fruit? So in a sense, salvation... Um, is salvation just the death of Jesus on the cross and the resurrection? 
Or is salvation an incredible life that was lived that could not be destroyed by the cross and conquered it and went through it? You see? And in that way, um, works or the law or what we do matters. Now listen, I'm not confusing works and merit. That's not what I'm saying. So let me, let me put it to you this way. Paul the Apostle, he has this most confusing way of looking at the law. On the one hand, Paul seems to outright reject, even violently reject the law. On the other hand, he, he uses the law and tells Christian communities to live by it. And scholars have said, what do you make by that? What do you make of that? Well, what we now learn is that Paul, when, when, when the law is used as salvific legal code to be saved, he absolutely rejects it. In fact, not just rejects it, but says um, it's the worst thing you could do. The worst thing you can do to humanity is impose this as legal salvation code. It'll cause discrimination, wars, race, all the things we've seen. But when in the context of the law or the rules or the precepts of God, when it comes to prophecy pointing to Christ, he loves it. And as ethics that lead to a wise community and to flourishing, he sees that as salvation. For example, Paul will say, um, I praise, in 2 Corinthians, I praise the God who did save me, who is saving me, and who will yet save me. Um, uh, he also says, he says in 1 Corinthians, by whom we are being saved. So another way that you could put it like this is that we, um, well, if you're a Christian, you have been converted, but you are being transformed. Okay? And the Bible would just use the word saved for all of that. You've been saved, and you're being saved. And the second bit of saved there very much has to do with how we participate and live our lives. In other words, I think David, in a sense, is saying, God blessed me because I, as a whole, lived a certain way and practiced certain things. I put myself in a position where God could bless me. In other words, this is wisdom literature. We like to think that as long as we're saved, we've got the first bit, we're converted, we're, our sins are forgiven and we're going to heaven, then how I live really doesn't matter, right? Because I can just 1 John 1, 9 it. And I can confess and God will forgive me. Yes, but in a sense, Jesus, you remember on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, if your right eye causes you to sin pluck that sucker out and throw it from you because it's better for you to enter into eternal life that is quality, zoe, quality kind of life. It's better for you to enter into that life maimed. How can you enter? If heaven is some place you go after you die, how are you going to enter that maimed? It's better that you enter eternal life maimed than your whole body, soma, that's the word soma, that's all of you, not just your body, but every part of you be thrown into hell. What is he saying? I think, is hell a real place? Yes. But what I think he's saying there is when we sow to our, to our flesh, we pull hell into our lives. How many times do I sit with Christians whose marriages are in shambles? Are they Christians? Are they saved? Yes, but they've made, they've made several mistakes ongoingly that now the trust in their marriage is disintegrated. And they are, in a sense, it's hell. 
It is destructive. It is a trajectory. It is horrible. Why? Because we were made to live wisely. And when we live wisely, God can, we put ourselves in a position where God can bless us. I'm not confusing works with merit. In other words, I'm not saying you're saved eternally if you do these types of things. You're converted, sure. But do you realize the goal of the Bible is not just your conversion. It's your transformation into the image of Christ. That's the idea. There was something about Jesus. Think about this. There was something about Jesus that when he entered a room and when you got to know him, there was something about him where you thought to yourself, that's the way I was meant to live. I was meant to live this. This is the life that I was meant. I, I, I want to be around him so I can learn. Not just so I can, I can be forgiven, as important as that is, and go to heaven when I die, but I want this now. I want a quality of life now. I want to tap into it now. And Jesus said, "Come, learn from me. Take my easy yoke upon you. Learn from me and live a certain way. Remember what he said at the end? We'll get into this in Matthew. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are those who hear and do. The word in the Greek is poieo. It means to practice. That practice these things. Blessed are you. You're wise. That's the word phronomos. You're a phronomos person. You're a wise person if you hear and do. You're not very wise if you just hear, but then don't change your life. And you invite destruction into your life. I think David is saying that in his life, he was able to be blessed because by and large, he was blameless. He, he followed the precepts. He lived the way he was supposed to live. Did he make mistakes along the way? Well, yes, of course, we know that. And did he invite hell into his life when he did that? Oh, yes. Yes. His life ends with him being a kind of a, uh, just a shell of a guy. Not really much power. Not what he's supposed to be. Is salvation a, is it a destination or is it a transformation? I would say yes to both. It's, a pro, it's, it's both an event and a process, absolutely. It's like when you get married. You, say, you, you stand there and you say, I do. And in that moment, a second before you weren't married and then the second after you are, but then it takes a lifetime to live into those vows that you just proclaimed for that person. I think the same is true with Christianity. Are you saved and Yes. But, can, but is that the end of it? Is that all you want? No. I, I don't want to be like Mike anymore. I want to be like Jesus. Because somehow in me, I know that he's who I was meant to be anyway. He's the ultimate man. He's the ultimate human. He's the image of God. Or Colossians, the icon, the icon, the, the one that we were all supposed to be. And he's transforming us. Little by little, into the image of Christ. And here's the thing. We have something to do with that. We can interfere with that. Or we can participate with that. And to the degree that we do and practice those things, to that degree, we are transforming. And to that degree, we start showing the world around us. what it, We become that person. When we walk into a room, people go, I don't know what it is. But man, you're the way I'm supposed to be living. I want to know more about you. That's why Paul said, follow me as I'm following Christ. 
There was, a, there was a sense that he was following someone and his life was so powerful that people wanted to be that too. I've ignored some hands. I'm done now. Who wants to speak? Yes, Nellie. Mm-hmm. Yes. 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 It's wisdom litter. Yes. Absolutely. That's right. Yep. No, no. You are speaking my language, girl. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. He's saying, and, and those, if anybody relaxes the least of these commandments, they will be called least in the kingdom of God. He's saying, okay, you guys, I think Christianity is more like a sport. I think it's mind and body. I, you know, Jameson and I, we enjoy the UFC. Maybe we shouldn't, but we just do. What? What? Andor and, and, and Sky. Yes, that's right. A lot of people. Okay, fine. Thank you. We're not alone. So, Paul says, I'm not like a boxer who beats the air and doesn't do anything, but I train my body. I buffet my body. Someone in the UFC wants to be champion of the world. That's mind. I have a vision of what I want to be. So what do they do? They go to bed at a certain time. They wake up at a certain time. They eat a certain kind of meals. They train day in and day out and day in and day out. In fact, the guy that uh, Jameson likes, Volkanovsky, he has, which I am not so super fond of, but he, um, the one thing I like about him is he says, I am a champion. That's his mind. I am a champion. And then he wakes up every day to become what he already believes that he is. Now, does that mean he doesn't make mistakes? Sometimes he eats a cupcake when he shouldn't? Or sometimes he eats some donuts. Of course, he makes mistakes, but he's practicing. He says, oh, oops, I forgot, I forgot who I am. This is who I am. So I'm going to practice and keep on training day in and day out to be transformed into this. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Good point. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I'm telling you guys, if we in this room practice our salvation. Exactly. Yep. But on the other extreme, if Vol Volkanovsky said, I'm a champion, I'm a champion, but he just sat on his couch eating pizza and bonbons all day, at some, at some point, we would say to Volkanovsky, I'm a champion. We'd say, are you though? I really want to be a champion. Do you though? Right? To be in the image of Christ. I mean, you, you guys understand, that's setting the bar for us super intimidatingly high, right? What, what but That's right. Yes, it's to learn a trade. It's to be an expert in something. And that takes a process. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's what David is saying here at the end of his life. He's saying, by and large, I was training. I was righteous. I put his rules before me. I lived a certain way, and, he was, and God blessed me.
according to. If you're a Christian, in a sense, you've been converted by the grace of God, but in another sense, you are being transformed. You are being transformed. And we absolutely have a major role and participation in our own transformation. We can resist it. We can grieve the Spirit. Or we can obey, which is an act of worship. Today at lunch, after service, some of us are going to discuss what worship is in terms of how we can incorporate different ways of worship into our service. Love for you to join us. But what is worship? Simply, it's it's obedience and surrender. Obedience and surrender. Yes. We can put ourselves in a place where God can bless us or transform us or save us. In other words, through wise living, the good life. And finally, there's so many other things we could say here. There's a whole other part about David killing people and grinding them into dust. We talked a little bit about that last week and how we can reconcile that. But I want to end with this. We only have a few minutes left. In the end, David uh, says it's all about God's faithfulness. Look at here. He says, For I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king and shows steadfast love. That's the word chesed. Um, to his anointed Mashiach, his Messiah, to David and his offspring forever. The promise was given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God would bless his offspring forever and that through his offspring, God would bless the entire world. That we are blessed on behalf of someone else. The reality is that not only is Jesus our example, He's also our forerunner. In other words, he lived a perfect life. He was the ultimate human instead of you. The son of David came and he did what you and I could not do on our best days, on our best days of practicing. He did what you and I could not do and then he died for what you and I have done so that in Jesus, the son of David, we're all, we all have access to this blessing. We have access to abiding in Christ We have access to continual transformation. Isn't that so exciting? That we don't have to, you know, what, what the problem is, is when we only think of salvation as the place we go after we die, what are we doing then? We're just waiting here, right? We just wait here. Instead of saying, no, I'm being, I can tap into this, the good life now. I'm being transformed now. And that will just continue on into eternity now, you know, I want, Paul the Apostle said, don't be a fool. God will not be mocked. For whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. If a man sows to his flesh, he will of the flesh sow corruption, or reap corruption. But if he sows to the Spirit, he will of the Spirit reap eternal life. Don't grow weary in doing good then. Because you know you will reap a harvest. What is that talking about? He's talking about a salvation that has access to you now. Pascal, in his Pensies, he said when it comes to salvation, make people wish it were true and show them how they can access it now. In other words, show that, the, that life in Jesus is so good. And some, someone said that to me um, just a few months ago. They said, I don't know you know, about the Bible. I don't know about Jesus, but he said, you know, one thing I do, I hope it's true. Because I love, I love the ideas of Jesus. I hope they're true. That's what Pascal was saying. With your life, make people go, man, I, 
I kind of want that, and I want it now. Otherwise, we have a Christianity that's defeated, and we're saying, well, someday, we'll win in the end. I mean, that doesn't make anybody wish that was true. I want a life that the end matters now. It retros back in transforming, maybe slowly, maybe quickly in some areas, but now I'm being transformed. Can we say that? And I, I want to, what's that? Make them thirsty, because they are. Maybe prick that thirst, absolutely. Don't you want more than this? Yes! Don't you want a life that you can have? Don't you want a joyful life that you can have whether you're bringing in $13 million a concert or not? <laughs> like, like the Swifties. Don't you want a life that transcends money? I mean, you look at um, Taylor Swift. She's 33 years old. She's living the good life, apparently. You look at that. Even if you buy into that's the good life, could any of us ever attain that? No. All we can do is just look on and go, oh, man. Right? That's all we can do. But with Jesus, we can actually be transformed into the really good life. Is it easy? No. Is it doable? Yes. And that's the vision we have for our church, that we would be a community of people that are following and practicing the ways of Jesus together, that we're being, that we could say we're being transformed as we follow the ways of Christ. Yes, we're saved, but we're also being saved. Gosh, I'll tell you guys, I am saved, but I am not satisfied with my life. I, I need to be saved, still. And we can't do that alone. We need each other to do that. We need to follow the Lord together. We need a village. We need, it takes a village, you're right. It does. This is the life of David. David lived this kind of a life. And at the end, it was a tumultuous life. It was not a clean life. It had its ups. It had its dramatic downs. But through it all, David says, I trust in your promise. You are my rock. You are the one stable thing. And if I align myself on you, I put myself on you, I'm going to be all right. I'm going to be transformed. I'm going to grow because you've promised it. We have that same promise. Amen?